bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. The Bowery is one of the oldest stretches of land in Manhattan and was once a footpath used by members of the Lenape tribe to traverse the island from north to south. In the mid-1600s, this area contained large farms tended by slaves imported by the Dutch West India Company. By the early 1800s, most of the farms had been torn down and replaced by residential and industrial buildings. Once the home of the most affluent members of New York social circles, and as a showcase for the city's performing arts, by the late 1860s, however, the Bowery fell from grace and assumed a reputation as a place of ill repute. Its streets were occupied by low-brow concert halls, German beer gardens, dime museums, gambling parlors, and brothels. Businesses were replaced by pawn shops and flop houses. By the early 1920s, the neighborhood would be known as the infamous Skid Row, a catch-all term for the rough-and-tumble areas in the Bowery whose itinerant and alcohol-fueled patrons would leave their mark on New York history. And to help us tell part of this history is our very special guest, Dr. Robert A. Aronowitz, He's an American physician and medical historian based at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of Making Sense of Illness and Unnatural History, Breast Cancer and American Society. Dr. Aronowitz also studied linguistics before receiving his MD degree from Yale. He also wrote an article that appeared in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine titled 
from Skid Row to Main Street, the Bowery series, and the transformation of prostate cancer. And Dr. Aronowitz, thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm good. Well, great. Um, understand you're under a little bit of duress there. You had a, a storm went through your area. There's a little yeah. power outage. So we're going we're gonna to persevere. Um, my first question was, although you're a, obviously a medical doctor, you, you developed a strong interest in history. Um, how did that come about? Which came first, I guess? No, I, my training as a physician through residency um, in internal medicine came first. Mm-hmm. But um, I had long been interested in the doctor-patient relationship and some troubling aspects of how we treat patients and the, and the patient's experience. And history uh, seemed like a great tool for unlocking the larger context in which people get sick and experience illness. Um, and you mentioned my first book, Making Sense of Illness, which is essentially a set of case studies of problematic diseases, problematic in the sense that they were controversial about their cause or how to classify them, whether the diseases were legitimate or not. And each of those case studies had some connection to my clinical experience. But I did also, just to complete this thought, uh, receive some training in the history of science and medicine while I was on a postdoctoral fellowship funded by the Robert Reed Johnson Foundation from the Global Clinical Scholars Program. And during those two years, in addition to being trained in epidemiology and health services research, I on my own sought out mentorship and some coursework with historians of science and medicine that are in the department that I'm currently the chair of. But, uh, uh, and for about a decade after finishing that fellowship, I, I pretty much practiced full-time clinical medicine and in the background uh, published, researched and published um, things like Making Sense of Illness and other articles. Um, and 20 years ago, I took the job or some version of the job I have now that was split between clinical medicine and the history of medicine and science um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I guess for the last 15 years or so, I've been full-time in the history and sociology of science department and uh, for the last seven years, chair of it. The, um, I have to ask you this before we move on to the, uh, uh, the article about what happened and, and the Bowery and the prostate cancer experimentation. But uh, you studied linguistics. Where does that fit for you? Between well, Is that between uh, history it, and it, medicine? Yeah, yeah, no, it does, it does fit. I mean, my, that first book, Making Sense of Illness, was largely a study of the implications of how we name and classify disease. And um, linguistics has long been concerned with the fact that the way we name and classify things or don't classify them and don't put something in name has consequences. Um, there's something fairly extreme called the severe wharf hypothesis. Which Could uh, you say that again? Is, the severe what? The severe, severe wharf. It's, it's okay. two men's names. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Wharf. Um, and when I tell you what it is, it's going to sound like a typical almost cocktail party uh, notion. The, it, you know, in, in its most bold form, 
it was the idea that the language you speak in some sense shapes your thinking and thought. Um, and put that way, it, it sounds like a, almost an unanswerable puzzle and question, but both, both uh, Sapir and Worf were very practical um, people. And um, uh, for example, Benjamin Lee Worf, his day job was as an insurance salesman. And okay. he noticed when he was processing, not an insurance executive, and he noticed that when processing accident uh, claims, that workers behaved differently around a bin that was labeled as empty. <laughs> and uh, that often they would, you know, throw a cigarette butt into one of these things. Uh, and of course, uh, they were not empty if you thought of the invisible gaseous, noxious, and, and flammable fumes inside and start a fire. And he, he was interested in the way our casual use of terms like empty, which suggests an, you know, complete absence of anything, misled us or, you know, were sort of um, grease on the wheel to behaving in certain ways. Um, and that connection also, you know, it may seem like a leap, but it extends to how we name and classify disease and illness. You know, that when we uh, place something in a category of infectious disease, we tend to think of the disease in a particular way, like a, a Satan-like demon taking over the body and then being exercised through antibiotics out of your body. Um, it's sort of what, you know, what the words infectious disease imply. It's not like a, you know, an iron cage, you know, uh, uh, constraining your thinking. You know, I, this pure hypothesis had a lot to do with subtle ways in which we behave a bit differently or certain habits of mind, sometimes sloppy habits of mind are, are encouraged by the way we uh, name things and classify them. So, it, you know, I, I turned a lot of that thinking about naming and classifying to our disease nosology, our systems for naming and classifying disease. And so there's, there's a kind of direct connection, though. Um, it doesn't animate everything I do, and it, it certainly probably was more active earlier in my career than, than later. How did the story of what happened on the Bowery with these uh, men and the prostate cancer experimentation. How did that come on to your radar screen? Okay, so I was working on something else. It was kind of like Columbus discovering America in a way. I was looking for something else, and this popped up. But I often tell, I, I was interested in, in the question of, and I still am, in the question of medical efficacy, how we know something works and why, and what does it mean to say uh, something works and, and is safe versus doesn't work and wasn't safe. And I was looking at you know, a number of diseases and a number of types of medical procedures. And um, you know, for a couple of days, I was following my nose about prostate cancer surgery. And what I tell students is a good way to get some idea of continuity and change in a particular medical practice is to get, go to a library that co collects multi, you know, uh, sequential editions of a medical text, or especially, let's say, you know, a prostate um, uh, uh, urology text in this case, um, and look at the chapter on prostate cancer and prostate cancer therapeutics and follow that chapter from, you know, whenever they start 1880, 1890, to as long as you go and look, look for what, look what comes in and out of fashion and what changes. And I was, I was doing that. I was doing what I tell my students to do to sort of get a sense of what was happening. And I noticed for a period of the 
50s, 60s, and 70s, um, there seemed to be some burst of enthusiasm for prostate cancer surgery. Uh, and I should tell you that you know, for the longest time, despite a, a very prominent operation being described in the very beginning of the 20th century, there was virtually no, nobody was doing uh, radical prostatectomies for cure of prostate cancer uh, for the longest time. And there was a lot of pessimism and inaction surrounding the disease. Anyway, I noticed that in the 1950s and 60s, there was uh, some action and, and in the footnotes and endnotes of these articles, they would uh, often refer to um, the work of a guy named Perry Hudson and his co-workers at Columbia University. And in some of the titles of the articles, the men- there, was, there was the word Bowery, the Bowery series was, was, was mentioned. And, and he actually had a series of publications that he numbered sequentially from one to, I think, about 16 or 20. But don't quote me on that. I, I don't remember the exact number. So, you know, as a... You know, this is what I do for, for the research part of everything. I followed that lead, uh, again, not knowing what I would find, and discovered, you know, and, and medical, published medical articles are very interesting. They can reveal a lot of disturbing things with um, what's mentioned and not mentioned, if you have a trained uh, eye for this in some level. And, um, you know, it was not a rich description of who these men were mm-hmm. and, um how they were recruited uh, or any concern with uh, informed consent and whatever, but you could see there was, you know, some rich thing that was going on. And, 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 and then we're talking about a few people we're talking about uh, pr- probably on the order of 1500 to 2000 men were being um, talked about as subjects or sometimes referred to as clinical material in this, um, in these published studies. And, you know, I can describe to you what the studies were about soon, but I should tell you that I, you know, as a medical historian, I didn't stop there, you know, with just moves in the published literature. Um, I then tried to follow uh, all the references to these studies, see who was uh, involved and see if they had any personal papers or um, uh, published reflections uh, mentioned. I tried to see if there were hospital records that were extant, uh, uh, and, you know, as I'll soon tell you about the study, whether there was any records of the men themselves uh, kept somewhere. Uh, and then uh, I tried to conduct oral interviews with um, anyone who was alive that was mentioned in the study. I, I also used, there's a, um, a network of urologists, mostly older retired urologists, who were interested in the history of their profession. And they have a society, uh, it's a subgroup of the, I think, the American Urological Association. And they have a medical history, they have a urological history museum and, um, and a little bit of an association. And I wrote them somewhat blindly saying, hey, I've heard about the story about the quote-unquote Bowery series that it looks like the chief investigator is Perry Hudson. Do you know anything about that? Do you have any experience with it? And a lot of, not a lot, but, you know, a number of people circulated my email message in this listserv. Uh, or I don't know how they did it, and people got back to me. And so then I asked more questions from those uh, people I had. I hope that answers your question about how I got initially interested in it. Okay. Uh, give us, uh, I guess, kind of the big picture. So th- this organization sure. or what have you, they went to the Bowery, and they recruited these single homeless alcoholic men to participate in this study, correct? Can you kind of fill yeah. us in? Let, let me give you, what? I think you need to know about sort of what was going on in the 50s okay. and 60s yeah. to make sense of this, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, 
there was a lot of agitation starting in the beginning of the 20th century for doing something about the emerging cancer problem. Cancer has always been with us, but the decline of other causes of morbidity and mortality and people living longer uh, and perhaps more affluent, uh, the uh, cancer problem became much more visible. And in certain cancers like smoking-related lung cancer and others, probably more prevalent too. So uh, you have this, you know, uh, organization that becomes the American Cancer Society later in the century called the American Society for the Control of Cancer. And there's uh, an attempt to sort of figure out what's causing cancer and, tr and especially trying to prevent it and treat it. Um, unfortunately, um, the cancers that they were interested in was a very gendered world. And uh, the main focus of these campaigns and public education was female cancers, especially breast cancer, but also cervical and uterine cancer. And um, you've heard of the radical mastectomy, maybe or William Paul said, but you know, there were also radical surgical approaches developed for these female cancers, hysterectomies and radium, whatever. Um, but prostate cancer, even though we now know, and some people knew then, was a very prevalent cancer, maybe the leading male-specific uh, cause of cancer death, um, though overshadowed by lung cancer mortality for most of the century, nothing was being done. And um, uh, one, ex and there was, a, I think I may have mentioned before, there was a surgical operation that was very parallel to the radical mastectomy for cure cancer in the breast that was developed for prostate cancer. And even though it was promoted by the leading urologist of his day at Johns Hopkins, virtually no one did it. And we could speculate about why, but one uh, sort of obvious reason is that it was just like the radical mastectomy. It was not clear whether lives were actually saved by this kind of operation. And there was probably a much less enthusiasm among male urologists to perform a mutilating operation, mutilating operation on other men, <laughs> um, you know, to be blunt about it. So this is the like, like thick fertile soil in which what I'm about to tell you happens. Uh, there's this guy, Perry Hudson. He's trained at Hopkins by the leading, he's not, you know, he didn't overlap with Hugh Hampton Young who had developed this radical prostatectomy, but he's taught the, the young operation and, uh, he's enthusiastic. Um, and he comes, uh, after finishing his residency, he comes to New York City, and as part of this cancer problem public reaction, New York City decided to fund two hospitals uh, that were public hospitals, um, you know, that were going to be focused on cancer. That, that there aren't such things anymore. But this is like a, a moment in time with this enthusiasm. Let's, let's try to detect cancer early and do something about it. And he gets put in charge of urology uh, service at this public cancer hospital that's affiliated with Columbia University that's now a senior citizen center, in, you know, in upper Manhattan. And um, he's got a problem. There aren't people to operate on, you know, and uh, nobody's, nobody's done anything about this cancer. Nobody's looking for it. You know, there's some talk about promoting rectal exams to see if they can find it, but men don't like having rectal exams and that's hardly having done. And um, he, um, ends up, this is the story he tells, uh, having a patient who was a Princeton University uh, professor who, who um, uh, uh, had not gotten tenure and ended up in a flop house in the Bowery. And he, and he was, and uh, Hudson diagnosed prostate cancer in this guy. 
and um, uh, Hutchinson said a light bulb went off on him. Maybe there's men in the Bowery I could convince, because regular paying patients at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital down the block were not going to do this. I convinced to come up to Delfield Hospital, this public cancer hospital, and uh, undergo a, a open perineal biopsy, a incision of you know, you know, a few centimeters, centimeters by a few centimeters. Uh, to see if they have prostate cancer, if they have it, I'll do this radical operation on them. And he goes down to the Bowery, um, initially to the, he says to the flop house that his Princeton uh, professor um, usually um, spent the night. And um, he was having a hard time recruiting these men. They were not interested in, in doing this. Um, and then uh, he went around uh, and eventually got to the Muni, the municipal lodging house, the uh, big public public shelter. And with the help of some social workers there, um, he was able uh, to go into the, as he described it, and as other people described it, go into the men. Men often got got showers. He, he, these were respites from the brutal life on the on the Bowery. Uh, and during the showers, uh, Hudson and his residents would go up to men and say, uh, we want to examine your prostate gland, which means doing a rectal exam in the showers. You can imagine a scene like this. And um, a good number of men, you know, like I said, over, you know, close to 2,000 over the course of a decade and a half, uh, uh, were convinced to go up to Delafield Hospital uh, to uh, undergo a whole, you know, it's a five-day hospitalization with all kinds of invasive tests, but the, you know, the main squeeze of the, of the, um, of the hospitalization was this open perineal biopsy where uh, a major operation and while you know, they were on the operating table waiting for the frozen section to be examined by a pathologist, um, uh, they, uh, you know, if it did come back positive, they then went to the full-blown um, open uh, perineal uh, resection of the, of the prostate, a major operation that, uh, uh, you know, can be very mutilating. And, um, if, uh, uh, and and subsequently got castrated uh, and were given uh, DES and other female hormones um, as a way of, you know, basically a atomic bomb was thrown on these guys to um, see if they couldn't cure the cancer that Hudson found. Were they paid to undergo this? No. No, Hudson was very, you know, we could you know, debate the ethics and... Um, but uh, Hudson, who we, uh, I, I, I probably didn't make that clear earlier, uh, he died recently, but when I started doing this research in 2009-10, uh, he was uh, close to 100 and alive and fully compassmentous and very willing to talk about every aspect of the study, which he was very proud of. Um, and he said uh, he was very proud of the fact he didn't pay them. He said he did offer them, a, you know, a few nights respite from the ravages of the Bowery and clean sheets, and um, and he told them if he had other medical problems, we'd fix them. And he believed that if he did find cancer in these men, and he did find it in some ten percent of the men um, who he um, uh, operated on, he was going to save their lives, because um, uh, or at least experiment with them to see if it was possible to save their lives. No, I should tell you that the sir, that the this experiment that went on for 15 years was so poorly organized because without a control group, without good record keeping, with a minimum understanding of clinical epidemiology and medical statistics, it's impossible to know uh, from what he did whether or not any lives were saved or not. 
um, in some sense, this is more of a, what we sometimes call a demonstration project. Let's see if we can actually, you know, pull this this big thing off that men will actually allow us to um, do this open biopsy, and if they have positive frozen section, let us do surgery on them. And in that sense, it was a positive study. Yes, you could do this, but you, who could you do it to? You could do it to homeless men who uh, would trade their bodies and, and, and let their bodies be mutilated if they really understood what was going on in return for, you know, a few days relief from the life on the Bowery. The, the fact that they did not use a control group and things were poorly organized and poor record keeping, was that typical of the way these things were done back then? Or was this unique, do you think, because well, no, there's a lot of bad coming I mean, from the know, Bowery. Uh, there's, you know, there's. A, <laughs> here's the best way to answer that. To call this just research, or to think of this as, you know, in a, as a kind of clinical experiment, you know, 1990s or 2000 style is, is to miss, you know, how things work then, and to some extent still work now. This was a total, like. Um, uh, experimenting in the sense of, 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 of tinkering around with surgical procedures and, and doing your, what you think is like clinical practice, what you think is just doing care in the context of trying to figure out if what you're doing and what you're tinkering with is helpful or not. And, you know, to this day, you know, um, you know, surgical um, practices are not subject to the same kinds of um, um, phases of clinical research and oversight from the FDA, uh, the way drugs are, people, surgeons, that is, do stuff, you know, change a gallbladder operation, expand the way they do heart-lung transplants, and whatever, and uh, practice and hone in on their skills and maybe eventually do a clinical study, but there were no clinical trials of surgery uh, of any sort in this period, you know, randomized clinical trials with control groups. This was an era, you know, today, I would say, still a minority of, of surgical innovation is done as a, as a kind of explicit experiment separate from clinical practice. So in some sense, it's not, um, what Hudson was doing was not, that you may say what the, the, the harm he was doing and the use of a vulnerable population was unusual, but not the kind of experiment. I have to take a step back, you know, uh, when you when any basic medical ethics history will will talk about the fact that in 1966 a guy named Beecher published uh, a whole series of uh, well one article with a whole series of of um, abstracts and, and summaries of clinical literature clinical experiments in, that were in the published medical literature in the best medical journals and what what Beecher showed was that in he picked that. He said it wasn't hard to find, like literally, you know, um, you know, hundreds of studies that had inadequate or absent informed consent that exposed patients to undue harm, that um, uh, you know were unethical on on multiple grounds. So uh, even you know Hudson's lack of you know use of a vulnerable population and inflicting harm on men without probably, you know, full informed consent, because how, how, how much autonomy did these men have, even if they, you know, were 
sober and could understand what was going on. Um, that was not atypical for the time either. Amazing. You know, in, in reading about it, uh, one of the descriptions or phrases that I ran into in describing this was ethical misadventure. I guess we yeah. would we could probably at least agree on that, right? Well, we could, but you know, you know, I do quote Hudson's voice in there, mm-hmm. and also one of his residents, and they said, you know, look, it's an ethical travesty that men are dying of prostate cancer. You know, uh, probably at a very similar rate to women at the time, and even now dying of breast cancer. And nobody cared about it. Nobody was doing anything about it. Right. Um, and he was feeling like, look, you know, I, I've got to jumpstart and change my fellow doctor's beliefs that there's something in the body that we can find, uh, a cancer that's early enough and that t- to be taken out of the body might save some lives. And, you know, as, you know, sometimes this is, this instrumental uh, aphorism is attributed to Stalin, you know, to make an omelet, you have to crack some eggs, right. you know, you got to begin somewhere around doing it. So he had no, uh, no real ethical qualms looking back on the study. And he's quick to point out, as I point out in the article, and it's actually the purpose of the article in some way, is that the world we live in now, um, where we, you know, millions of American men are, every year annually get PSA blood tests. And if they get uh, positive, that is a higher than, uh, according to some standard level of PSA, the prostatic specific in their blood, they're uh, then biopsied in, in a less mutilating way because of technological advances than these Bowery guys. Um, uh, and if cancer is found, like the Bowery guys, they, they undergo often, I mean, sometimes some people have to do nothing, but uh, many people opt for either radiation or um, a radical prostatectomy. And this is not Hudson's point, but it's my point. Uh, 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 in some sense, we're in a, a more ethically problematic world today because um, we still don't know whether or not men and the American population is benefiting from this massive screening program. The evidence is unclear. and. The PSA screening, whatever you think about the evidence today, it diffused massively through American society starting in 1985. Uh, And the first published studies of a clinical trial comparing men screened and not screened weren't even published in 2009. So for um, 24 years, almost a quarter of a century, it was a massive experiment that was happening. That is experiment in the sense that nobody had any clue to whether this was helping or not on a much larger scale with much more resulting mutilation that ever happened on the Bowery. So, well, you know, one of the reasons I just opposed the past and the present is to ask the question, what, and, you know, with a somewhat suggestive um, uh, response because some of the rhetorical question, why isn't there more ethical um, outrage over what, what had happened in the 25 years when there was no evidence? And now that we have evidence that's really unclear, why is there still not much of ethical revulsion or uh, questioning about the world we're living in now? It's easy to, to you know, get upset about these, what Hudson did, I would say, 
uh, given our present understanding of medical ethics and what's happened in between. But it's, it's less easy to look at the present in this way. Well, Dr. Aronowitz, on that cautionary note, <laughs> uh, we're going to say goodbye. And I, but I can't thank you enough uh, for taking the time to share with us this story, this incredible story, and yeah. for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Take care. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, Use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Mm-hmm.